Business of Cambridge from Cambridge 105 Radio. For episode 7 of series 1, we're back in Sue Keogh's office on Mill Road for a discussion about digital with Matt Berman from The Junction and James Cotton from One Space Media. Hi, welcome to the Business of Cambridge. One thing I'm not going to be asking is should your business have a website? Because I feel like we've all moved on a bit from that nowadays. So James Cotton, you're the founder of digital agency One Space Media. Hello. Hi Sue, how are you doing? So tell me about a typical project for you. Who is it that walks through your doors? Okay, so we've been going for 10 years now and we've started to niche really in uh, technology and life sciences just because of the uh, kind of concentration of those um, companies locally. So typically we'll have marketing or C-suite executives coming in and asking us how they can leverage the internet essentially to help them with their business objectives. And um, I wanted to have someone on show who was from an industry that is a bit pre-internet. So... (laughs) Someone that has seen all these changes come in and, you know, might have an insight into what's coming next. So, hello, Matt. Hey. Hi. So, you are the Artistic Director and CEO of The Junction. And so, tell me just a little bit about the sort of channels that you're on nowadays. Well, I think like most organisations, we're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and obviously using our website a lot to drive box office sales to the website and share stories about what we do. We have something like 110,000 visitors, members of our audience each year. We've had something like 3 million or over 3 million over the last 30 years. But, you know, in the arts, it's been the same job for about 3,000 years. You tell people that a show is on at a time and then you hope that a live audience turns up for that and it's been like that since the Greeks. <laughs> uh, and so I think in lots of ways, not a lot has changed. But easier to get the message out these days though, right? <laughs> well, more, and more difficult, you know, it's a lot busier than it was in Athens. And so when did you build the first website and were you part of the company then as well? No, I've, I've only been with The Junction for a couple of years now. I think our first website would have been at the back end of the 90s, like a lot of organisations. At that point, I was actually working for the British Council as a web manager and designing the sort of global web presence for the British Council. So I was a relatively early adopter in terms of coding and I've sort of gone through a system and and I'm now an artistic director I'm I'm not working in marketing per se but obviously I manage that team and the strategy for the organization as a whole but I think we're constantly looking at for new ways of connecting with audiences I think that's the the crucial thing for us is not to stand still not to be complacent and to have an active rather than a passive presence and then for you James just going back a few years those early websites that you built what were the sort of features that you found on them? Well, I think the difference now is that organisations are starting to realise how to leverage design and technology essentially to help them you know, achieve certain business objectives. Ten years ago, it was very much about ticking a box and having a website. So you saw a lot of what we would call brochureware websites, which essentially just information websites where you may have a simple contact form. And it wasn't very successful from a lead generation perspective, but you know, it, it was kind of like as a, as a business, you would have to have a website essentially. So... What's really changed now, I think, is that the website is never done and it's part of a much wider digital ecosystem that you have to kind of nurture, you know, every single day. It's interesting as well how the terminology has changed. So when I was doing work for the BBC, the department was called New Media Mm -hmm. and people in radio and TV were like, well, who are these young upstarts? Um, But of course now it's digital. So what would you say that digital actually means nowadays? 
Well, it's a difficult question, that's Sue, and I'm not I sure like anyone knows. But I, I, like, I like the term. I think that it is becoming somewhat of an outdated term in the same way that new media or media is now as well. And so, funnily enough, we're, we're, we're contemplating dropping the media from one space media at the moment from a branding perspective, just because what does it really mean to people? And with Junction, so just I'm interested in the progress. So where you started and then what sort of channels you decided to take on, what was dropped over time. So... Are you familiar with the earlier websites that the junction had? Yeah, I mean, it, as you say, it started with the website and then it, you start looking at other channels as well. You're looking at social media and looking at how you have a conversation with an audience, essentially. So I imagine we had a MySpace page at, at some point, as we all did. But it's always about sharing that content or sharing information or having that conversation. I think you have to have a really active conversation to engage an audience. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that we're finding most successful at the moment is where you ask a, a genuine question of of your audience, of our of our users, if you like, of our friends, and engage in that conversation. So we have been running a project called Lost Nights and Love Songs around our 30th birthday, and we've been collecting content through that, and it's been one of the most successful things recently in, in our engagement with audiences because everybody has a story to tell about the junction, and, yeah. and we all want to hear those stories. It's it's about real stories. I and is that something that's just spread in a very natural, organic way, or have you had to put any money behind it and, and advertise and promote, or have you just got the idea out there and then people followed? That came out of an idea that I had about 18 months ago to look at our archive and realising that our archive was quite patchy. We've had a number of different directors, a lot of staff over the years, so we haven't necessarily kept all our posters and all the materials that we produced in that time and I wanted to look at how our audiences could help us fill that archive so we've been working on the ground in communities so we've been having real life conversations on the street not necessarily literally on the street but in people's houses I think a lot of advertising I suppose or marketing for arts organizations is kind of formulaic like that and I'm really interested in how we might change that over time and make that more active but it's one of the challenges of, uh, of a charity of a social enterprise where you're working with a small team you could have a five ten person marketing team working with the amount of content that we're developing we just don't have the money to to support that at the moment. So who is on the team? Because this is always a big question. You know, people have, they talk like they've got an enormous budget, but actually <laughs> when it comes down to doing it, well, who are you going to find to do the work? Yeah. So what's your team look like? Uh, two people. Two people? So, yeah, okay. yeah. So we have a marketing manager and a marketing officer, Ed and Laura, and they do incredible work. We have something like 600, 700 events each year, which they are marketing, so more or less a couple a day. So there's a huge churn. There's a huge volume of work to get through. And, you know, if you're talking to an audience... I imagine probably 10 times, I'm guess this is a complete guess, I, I, I admit, but potentially 10 times the audience that we're actually getting through the door. So we're probably talking to at least a million people a year through those channels. That's a lot of conversations to keep live. And with the sort of people that you work with, James, um, so you're helping build and develop the websites, but what about who looks after them after that point? Who makes sure the content is still being created? Well, you know, interesting, you know, when we talk about sort of 10 years ago, you know, the agency model was very much one of let's not give people the keys to the vehicle, basically. And if it needs maintenance, then they've got to come back to the garage, essentially, to use a metaphor. Over the last few years, kind of advanced in what we call content management systems, so people can manage their own websites and all the tools that come with those. Actually, it's changed that agency model. So 
agencies are empowering their customers essentially to manage simple tasks on a day-to-day basis, posting news, posting events, things like that, you know, moderating comments. You know, those are the types of agencies that are going to thrive and have longer-term relationships with their clients because, you know, for example, One Space Media, we're much more interested in adding value to our clients' business as we are to making, you know, 100 quid to update the copyright statement in the footer. But it's really interesting how that tool set has changed over time. And now we refer to them as website management systems just because they're interfacing with so many other business systems, for example, careers, platforms, investor portals, whether you're doing sales on your website as well. So websites have become much more sophisticated as a business tool as they were you know, a few years back. And so what about with Junction? What's in your toolkit then? We use a content management system on the website and we <laughs> schedule our content so that it's going out at the best time for our audiences to see that. When's yeah. that? When's the best time? Because uh, that's the question that's people the ask me all the time. Yeah, exactly. Well, the answer is always it, it depends. It, 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 yeah, you have to look at when people are looking at social media most, I think, with those things. So there's a, a window around about half past nine, there's a window around two o'clock, there's a window after work, I would say. That's mm. about right, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And then Thursday lunchtime or Thursday afternoon is a really good time to get a, a we, really We turn off our story, social yeah. media at half past nine because we've got to get people working in the morning. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it old school. Yeah. Yes, and it's just keeping that regularity of content going out and we're, we're looking at a mix of where content is directly related to the business and content which is if you like tangential to that so it might be connected but it's not content that we're producing it might be something that's viral or something that's being shared more widely so to try and find images to do that digital storytelling you know you think about life sciences people think about labs and you know the syringes and pipettes in that kind of you know the old school life science where in your business you're kind of almost you're bombarded with so much kind of rich media beautiful you know imagery and stage stuff and musicians and great looking artists and things like that you've almost got the opposite problem to us we haven't got enough and you've got kind of too much yeah right? we've got way too much yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean you, as I say we've got something like 700 shows so you've got 700 channels of content yeah. coming in or 700 inputs coming in for that and you have um, to repurpose it all yeah and we're sharing stuff as well mm. so i mean that's what i mean about developing a channel i suppose is where we could actually be producing more content ourselves but that's the time intensive work that we haven't quite got the resources for at the moment but i think if you imagine we've got potentially two bands and a theater company in the building every day of the year for 30 days of the year then we could be producing three batches of content for that and doing interviews and all sorts of things that could be making our our social media channels even more sticky I suppose. One thing you've got that's to your advantage but then also it's probably a bit of a challenge is the audience itself so mm-hmm. nowadays you've got a room full of people all holding their phones up and filming it and then they're sharing that on their channels they might even yeah. be live streaming so where are we with rights issues around that do you have any challenges? I think if somebody is filming the whole of a show and they are monetizing that in some way via their own channels, then there are obviously big rights issues. There are no rights issues in terms of somebody sharing a small excerpt of a gig or an image from a concert because those things amplify the impact yeah. of, of that content. I think most artists are very well aware of that. I think obviously there are times when an artist will say there is no filming in their shows at all. 
and you have to respect an artist's view on that and they have reasons for that or they want to sort of protect the experience for the rest of the audience as well. And That's say, one thing I was going to ask you about. How do yeah. you think this has impacted the audience experience at gigs nowadays? Yeah. I'm such an old woman about this, I really am. <laughs> I, I, I swing both ways on it and I think it really depends on the audience and it depends on the artist. I think there are times when it makes absolute sense for everybody to be on their phones and... You know, if we're doing grime or drill nights at our place, then the the artist will be on stage taking as many selfies as the audience. And, you know, that's the nature of that style of music. There are times when you will get a lot of grumpy, and I will say older men, and I know that's a horrible generalisation, but you'll get grumpy old men. We've got one shrugging in the corner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you get a, a section of the audience who will be upset by people being on their phones filming stuff because they want to have an unmediated experience. They don't Actually, my uh, my problem with gigs nowadays, now I'm in my mid-40s, is that type of older man that stands there with his arms folded like that oh, near me. the front but doesn't, doesn't want to dance. That's, that's so, oh, <laughs> I'm doing it wrong, I'm doing it wrong. Okay, so on the Business of Cambridge today, we're talking about digital strategy with James Cotton from One Space Media and Matt Berman from The Junction. James, talk me through some of the current trends that you're seeing in the websites that you're developing. What we find is, in, in, and this is slightly different to, well, very different to the industry that Matt works in, is that in technology and life sciences, there's an interesting cycle. So you often get investor cash, which you know seeds a company, essentially. And then companies are kind of in this battle between trying to prove that their technology or their discovery is going to be successful for those investors, whilst also getting more investment to keep it going over time. Then they'll go into a different stage where they are battling for the best minds, for example. In a town like Cambridge, there's huge competition for the best graduates, you know, the best scientists, the best technologists, the best computer programmers. And so the websites can play an important role there with um, defining company culture and benefits. You know, we'll be linked into careers modules with different recruitment agencies and things like that. So you've got this kind of whole ecosystem there. Then they may get some public funding, for example. Then they need to communicate all their governance and their results to their investors and all the, you know, all the those guys so essentially we try and work with companies over long periods of time to address their specific business objectives at that stage essentially and so this kind of folds right back into what we were talking about at the start of the show where you tick a box and you say the website's done actually the website really is never done until the company is shut down really I think and so it's really about how can we build a platform which is like a strategic digital investment that grows with you is extensible over time and so you don't have to keep going through these kind of cycles of money spending over time you can just keep the same platform maybe redesign it with different trends and things like that you asked me specifically about trends i was yeah, talking that's, more about process really but um, <laughs> well things like a couple of years ago mm, everybody wanted a flash yeah. intro for example yeah. what are those things uh, that you're seeing what at the I moment think now is that people are so obsessed with being higher up the google rankings and that's probably one of the biggest trends that we're seeing at the moment so so many factors play a huge role in in digital technology to, to kind of you know boost your ratings whether you're getting ratings from sort of my google business how fast your page speed loads whether it has mobile ready versions and this is a hugely complicated mix of things and so the biggest trend that we're seeing at the moment is this battle between trying to provide people with a rich kind of multimedia interesting you know story with trying to keep page loads down and trying to ensure that content is loading and we're ticking all the boxes for search engines and so it's actually quite a difficult balance and because of Google's um, secret algorithms which is they keep changing all the time um, wherever it's happening in the, in the middle earth somewhere 
is that you know we never really know you know what's going to happen next and what's going to change. Yeah, there's no and So we are somewhat at the mercy of the search engines from a trend perspective. And how about SEO, search engine optimization, and the junction? Is this a big issue for you, or does everybody kind of know how to find you anyway? Or how does that have an impact on what you do? It's something that bugs me occasionally. Obviously, I like everybody. I search for myself or search for ourselves and see how that pans out and if we're not on the first page you're obviously in the dark web of the second page of google yeah and so you obviously you want to avoid that but i think for us at the moment we're always fairly well ranked i think that's probably because of the diversity of our offer anyway i think it's also people are often driven by an artist or they're driven by a band so they'll be searching for a particular band and and they'll be getting that recommendation either from the band's list or the band's website or from other marketing that they might be getting so there's a a whole set of factors that are influencing whether people are making a choice to come to the junction that night. You've got such a well-known brand though, haven't you? I mean, 30 years of digital history kind of yeah, puts yeah. you in a very dominant position, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, yeah, and as I say, that diversity of offer, you know, the fact that we're still one of the top clubs in Cambridge and one of the top music venues even after 30 years, or you know, particularly after 30 years, is really important to us. So what are the things that you measure and what sort mm. of tools do you use to do it? We use Google Analytics, as a lot of people do, as well as a box office system called Spectrix. So that is connected to our site and we're looking at the data that is collected through that. So we're looking at postcode data and things like that and and connecting that with visitors. We're obviously measuring monthly visitors and unique visitors and the kinds of things that everybody is measuring and followers and friends and those kind of metrics as well. So it's a whole bunch of different things that we measure generally on an annual basis and is also part of our reporting to our stakeholders to our funders so they're very interested in in those digital metrics as well so i was going to say it's easy for you know companies i think to get sucked into kind of what we call vanity data how many twitter followers have we got how many facebook followers have we got but actually when you start drilling down actually and understanding what that kind of visitor data actually means from a financial perspective that's when you really start to uncover things and so what are the sort of things that you measure we did this on behalf of a lot of customers. We have some pretty advanced tools, things like Moz and things like that, which really pull data from lots and lots of different sources, obviously including Google Analytics. And I think one of the hardest things which you know most companies can get to grips with is that Google Analytics can give you a lot of false positives. Because let's say, for example, you visit your own website 50 times a day, but you don't shut out your own IP address. You know, you're getting an extra 50 visits. Obviously, we're measuring visitor metrics. We're looking at social media. But I think one of the most interesting things, especially if we're running kind of advertising campaigns is how much is a lead costing a customer and actually Google has so much data on this that actually when you are buying digital advertising you can pretty much predict you know that you're going to get 2.5% referrals back essentially from the amount of ads you put out there at the lower end it's 1.75 but as if you know how much you're paying for that advertising you can actually work out how much a lead is going to cost you so we can pretty reliably tell our customers that you know it's going to cost you 60 pound for a lead for example. Now, the problem is with that, the, the website, you know, if we're leading people to the website, the website still has to convert. So you, get, you can have great advertising, but if they're coming to a website which is really poor on conversion, then actually that money can just be getting thrown away. So it's much more complicated than just having great advertising. You know, there's still work to do. How do you respond if you get someone that's being really aggressive, really negative on social media? Maybe they're leaving terrible reviews about you. What do you do? Do you just ignore them or do you answer as a company? How do you respond? No, we, we, we 
do engage with people directly. I think if they're being constructive, we want to have a constructive conversation with them. We take on feedback. We develop our programs accordingly, really. What we will often do is, you know, there is a reputational management side to what we're doing and, and we would want to take sort of an engaged, a longer conversation offline, if you like, or, you know, at least by email so that we can properly deal with that and really listen to people. So I yeah. think we're very open about that, I think, generally speaking. I think one of the greatest challenges for us is the amount of stakeholders involved in a project. And I think that, you know, we have a really, really tight process, we're really high throughput, you know, fast output. And I think we really thrive on momentum. Now, what we find is, is that, say we're working on a project where we've got a designer, a developer, a project manager, and then at their end, there may be a, a marketing assistant or a marketing manager, but they're reporting to a CEO or some founders that aren't involved in the process. We have a very collaborative process, and often we find, we, well, we call these guys upstream stakeholders, which is an awful term, and I'll never ever say it again on the radio. <laughs> but um, essentially what it means is, is while we can't provide a, decent, a, a, a narrative to those guys because we're not in communication with them, sometimes information gets lost in translation from the people we're dealing with to their superiors. And so often this can lead to kind of iteration cycles, which we're not expecting, and things like that. So as much as possible, we're always trying to get to the key decision makers, and they need to be part of our project. And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges the second one i would say is the content process you know the design process is pretty straightforward technology process is pretty straightforward if you've got you know if, if you've got good experts working there content as you'll know soon in, in the business that you're in is that is it the client's responsibility? Is it our responsibility? But often it's a hybrid of those things. And so, you know, we're not an organisation that's going to give someone an empty website with a content management system and say, there you go, you can put your content in. Because we understand the importance of the marriage of, of visual and editorial. And it's really, really important to create impact, you know, to create engagement. We'll work with our client, essentially, to try and build out the website in the way that the designers intended. And often in that last stage, that can be, you know, have some creative challenges, essentially. But we, we always get through it and I think it's um you know content is one of the you know I still think one of the greatest challenges of, of kind of all media really and one thing to ask both of you but I'll ask uh, Matt first is about how do you decide what is just a fad and what's going to be a long-term trend like TikTok for example oh, yeah. which has just yeah, suddenly TikTok, exploded yeah. into yeah, being yeah. so do you think right we've got a leap on this because we're an arts organization and you know we need to look cutting edge or actually we should just focus on Facebook because we know that works I think for us at the moment the channels that we're working with are the right channels. I think we have looked at things like TikTok and Snapchat and other ways of communicating, WhatsApp yeah. and yeah. other ways of communicating. I think they're not fads so much as not necessarily the channels being used by our core audiences. So something like TikTok is being used by a younger audience than yeah. is generally buying tickets at the moment, but that will shift, I'm sure. And is it hard to stay on track like that and not look at the big new shiny mm. thing and want to chase after it? It's always a temptation. I think we have limited resource and limited budget and we have to be really strategic with how we, we spend that resource resource you know as a for instance in, in one of my previous roles we were looking at a student yeah engaging with the student audience and we were still using Facebook a lot and we knew that that student audience at that point were really not using Facebook at all so I was really questioning why we were putting so much energy into Facebook I don't think we know yet what the next big thing is 
so I think it's really future gazing for the thing that will be coming around the corner, which will be the next thing that everybody will adopt. And I don't think we know what. No, it's not there yet, is it? I think the people are still developing it now. I think you know we're talking about things like VR and AR, weren't we, before the interview started, Matt? And I think these are still kind of unproven, you know, mass media technologies. And it's like, how do uh, you know companies or you know people who are just starting up their companies, how do they even get involved in this sort of technology because the costs are so prohibitive to entry? But, you know, interesting enough, I remember we were talking about TikTok, but I, mean, I don't know if you remember Vine, for example, yep, the kind of yep, short video thing, seconds. and everyone was going crazy about Vine, and it was this offshoot of Twitter, and, you know, that died a death. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that companies can make with limited resources is spreading themselves too thin. We talk about websites being at the kind of centre of a, you know, digital ecosystem, you know, if you give the um, kind of solar system metaphor, but the website and all of these kind of satellite networks are all sharing information, but you're trying to get people to the place where a transaction is made, essentially, whether it's leaving an email address or whether it's buying a ticket in Matt's case or, or, or whether it's you're getting people to share something, for example. And I think that the more satellites that you have around, the more work that you've got to do. Yeah, okay, there's some interesting stuff you can do with automation and things like that, but the more automation you have, the less you have human voice and so it's always about balance and I think that if you're concentrating on the big three Twitter, Facebook and Google and, and I'm not plugging them by the way guys um, you know I think you're, you're, you're going to be pretty safe you know doing that So what would you say is the cornerstone for a digital strategy nowadays? First of all, it's understanding your audience and what you're trying to get them to do. I think that's key. I think that as companies quickly too fast can go out and you know regurgitate press releases or you know regurgitate the fact that they've got a new team member. And most of the time, their audiences don't really care that much about that. They want to know why this company or why this service is going to be good for me. And it's almost about how can you mould your content strategy into being one which is for your audience as opposed to being about you. Do you see what I mean? And I think sometimes, you know, companies can become echo chambers of their own information. It's like, we just got a new water cooler or, you know, we just got a new delivery of A4 paper or something like that. <laughs> what, what's, on what's boring about that? I mean, no, okay, <laughs> okay, I'm being facetious, but you, you see what I mean? And I think that, you know, and often they'll just regurgitate that stuff across their social networks and they wonder why they haven't got any, any kind of engagement. But when you're challenging your audience or asking them something about themselves and trying to open up a conversation, that's very different. Yeah, I think asking questions is one of the most mm. important things of an audience. Developing that content, which is as much about the communication between individual members of a community. And I think it's about community building. I think I'm really interested in the tools by which we can grow both online and offline communities. I think radical connectivity was a phrase that sort of came out around about, I don't know, about 10 years ago, something like that, which was about the speed of communication and how that was in influencing government and the delivery of social services. And a whole bunch of things and I think I'm interested in appropriating the term radical connectivity to actually talk about human to human collaboration and conversation and I think there are still ways that digital can enhance that we were sort of talking about what is digital and and actually for me it makes as much sense to say that something is digital now as to say it's made with a pencil because like pretty much everything is yeah. is digital in some way and I think for me we are in a, a world which is imbued with the digital as much as it is the physical. And I, I know that some of my friends in, in critical theory are sort of looking at that divide and saying that makes no sense. You know, the physical analogue digital divide makes no sense anymore. And I think that's where there's real potential because we are all human beings in a, in a world that is connected differently because of the digital. And I think if we can connect differently as communities through that technology, then I think that's something really exciting. It's just medium to change. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, we'll be along next time with more stories from the business community in Cambridge. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 
Our thanks to Matt Berman and James Cotton. Next time, it's innovation with two guests who are already living in Cambridge in the future. The Business of Cambridge is a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio and you can download or stream every episode at Google, Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.